we're going to open up God's Word together now, and uh, we're going to be in Malachi again, not looking at the whole book of Malachi, but looking at just a couple verses in Malachi. I've told you this before, that uh, sometimes on any given week I'm asked to speak, often in chapels at school, Uh, and Sometimes they give me a text they want me to speak on, and that was the case at Northern Christian this past week. They've been working through the book of Malachi for the year. I said to, uh, to Linda DeMott, who is the teacher there, sets all this stuff up, I said, what were you thinking? How are we supposed to come in and talk to these high school kids about Malachi? And she laughed, and she said, well, I think it's a good challenge, but it was a good challenge. And I was grateful for the opportunity to do that. I had the last two verses of the book, and so I spent time with these verses, and I tried to make them accessible to the kids, and rather than studying and spending time with a whole another set of verses and passages, I like to just take this and make it into my evening sermon. So uh, I saw Cam somewhere. Cam, you've heard a little bit of this already at school, but I promise it's a little, it's a little different. It's a little bit longer, not too much longer. It was only about 10 minutes at school, but uh, uh, maybe others of you heard this as well. I don't know. But um, the last two verses of Malachi... We're going to to look at specifically, these are the last two verses of the Old Testament, and I'm just, I'm going to start reading at the beginning of chapter four, uh, right through the end, it's only six verses, but we're just going to focus on the last two together. This is what the prophet says, this is how the Old Testament ends, surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace, all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. And here's our text. See... I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. God's word for his people tonight. Let's pray and ask him to bless us as we study it. Lord God, once again, we are grateful for the freedom we have to study your word together. As we come to these Two verses at the very end of the Old Testament. Uh, Lord, we ask your blessing uh, on our time together tonight. We ask that you would help us to understand these truths, to apply them to our lives, to, to see what they have to say about you and about us and about how we're to live in this world. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Malachi here in chapter 4 has just told us about the coming of the Messiah. He says, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. That is a reference to the Messiah. And now in these these last two verses, he tells us that before the Messiah comes, God will send Elijah the prophet. Now, who is that a reference to? Who is this so-called Elijah that is to come before the Messiah? Well, Some have taken this to mean that it is the man Elijah himself, the very same Elijah whom we meet in 1 Kings. Remember, he did not die. He was taken away 
in a chariot of fire. He's the one who's going to come before the Messiah and Jews today, to this day, still leave an empty place at the table during the Passover meal for the prophet Elijah. Of course, we find out in the New Testament that it's not Elijah himself whose coming will precede the Messiah, but it's one who is like Elijah in spirit and in power and in dress even, whose coming will precede the Messiah's. That person, of course, is is John the Baptist. We don't have to wonder about this. Matthew tells us, Matthew 17, 11 through 13, Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. All right, John the Baptist is the Elijah spoken about here at the end of the Old Testament. And if you think about it, this is a very appropriate place for the Old Testament to end. Especially in light of Mark's gospel where the very first thing Mark does is introduce us to this funny, dressed fellow named John who came declaring that one coming after him was going to be much greater than himself. There may be 400 years in between Malachi and the Gospels, but the story picks up where it leaves off. And once again tonight, as we we see this, we're reminded of the continuity between the two Testaments. We're reminded of the old saying that I repeat often, and hopefully you is familiar to you now, but the Old Testament is the new concealed. The New Testament is the old revealed. Right? Those things in the Old Testament that are a bit mysterious and hard to understand, well, they are brought to light and they are clarified in the New Testament. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. That's happening again here. The Elijah who is to come is John the Baptist. I think we're also reminded here at the end of the Old Testament that our God, we have to love this truth about Him, our God does not make promises for fun. When He says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. When He says Elijah will come, He means it. And this, too, is always a good thing for us to see, that our God keeps His promises. If He says He's going to be faithful, He's going to be faithful. If He says there's forgiveness for our sins in Christ, there is forgiveness for our sins in Christ. If He says all things work together for good to those who love Him, then you better believe they do and they will. If He said He will return and restore all things and wipe away every tear from His people's eyes, you can bet your life on the fact that He will. Our God is a God who keeps His promises. Elijah came, just as the prophet said He would. Now, what will this Elijah who is to come do? Well, He's going to come before the day of the Lord, we're told. And when we hear that term, day of the Lord, I bet our minds probably go to, to the last day, right? Our minds go to the day of judgment, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's correct, that's appropriate. That day is the day of the Lord. But it's actually not the only 
day of the Lord. When the prophets use this term, they use it in such a way so, so that it encompasses both the first and second comings of Jesus. Now, I don't think the prophets knew this. I think they sort of looked into the future, however that worked, and they, they saw the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah, but, but they couldn't really distinguish between the, the first and second comings. As they looked into the future, they, 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 they saw a coming, and they referred to a coming, but it looked like, it looked like one event to them. But nevertheless, this term, it, it refers to the coming of Christ, His first coming long ago as a baby in Bethlehem, but then also His second coming in power and glory, the one that we still look forward to. So Elijah will come before the day of the Lord, and what will he come to do? Well, he'll come to give people notice of its coming. He comes to give people notice of the coming of the day of the Lord. He comes to help people be ready for the day of the Lord. This was John the Baptist's job, right? What did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's coming. We're on the cusp of it. Or the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Those are the kinds of things that John said, and all of them were meant to prepare the way for the Lord. His job was to put people on notice. And you know, God still sends people like this into our lives, doesn't He? Robert Murray McChain wrote in his journal about his brother who would direct him and counsel him and care for his spiritual well-being. His brother died suddenly at a young age, and, 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 and McChain wrote and lamented the fact that now he had no one to care for his soul any longer. But his brother filled that John the Baptist role in his life. He helped prepare Robert for the Lord. God sends people like this into our lives, doesn't He? He sends pastors, maybe. He sends parents. He sends friends. He sends youth group leaders. He sends fellow church members. He sends people into our lives who, who call us to repentance, who help prepare us for the Lord, who put us on spiritual notice. We ought to thank God for these people. There'd be nothing worse than God showing up unannounced, right? That'd be a rude awakening, wouldn't it? God showing up unannounced in judgment. But from the time of Christ, uh, when He sends John the Baptist, until His second coming, right? He, he, he sends people to prepare the way of the Lord. He sends people to to put others on notice, to alert them to spiritual realities, to alert them to the Lord's coming. Now, what else will Elijah do? Well, verse 6, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Basically, Malachi says he will help God's people keep the fifth commandment. Now, why does he focus on the fifth commandment here, right? Well, well, one reason is probably because earlier in the book, he talked about how God's people weren't honoring God as their father, and he's, he's probably picking up on that again here. There might be some, 
some background that maybe we're not so familiar with just coming in at the end of the book, but, but it's probably best to see, to see the reference to the fifth commandment here as a, as a synecdoche. It's one of my favorite words in the English language. I think it's fun to say, synecdoche. What's a synecdoche? Cam, you remember what a synecdoche is, buddy? Your English teacher didn't even know what a synecdoche was when I asked her, so don't worry about it. <laughs> a synecdoche is a figure of speech in which a part of something is made to represent the whole, right? So when Aaron and I were dating, if I would have said to my wife, Aaron, can I have your hand in marriage? I'm using a synecdoche, right? The word hand represents the whole person. I don't really just want her hand. I want, I want her, right? You get it. A part represents the whole. For watching Tigers baseball, maybe, this example got really hard because the Tigers have nobody good at all on their team anymore. But uh, maybe a few years ago, we might have said, hey, you think, you think Verlander can pull it off tonight? Of course, by that, we didn't just mean Justin alone. He wasn't the only one playing. We meant the entire Tigers baseball team. That's a synecdoche. It's a figure of speech in which part of something is made to represent the whole. The Bible uses synecdoches often. All of the commandments, in fact, are synecdoches. Each commandment stands for a broader category of, of sins. All right? The Bible uses synecdoches often. It, it speaks in ways often in which the part of something represents the whole. Here, the fifth commandment. The turning of, of fathers' hearts to children and children's hearts to fathers. It really represents the entire law of God. It represents all of God's commands. It's, it's one element of righteousness to represent the whole gamut of righteousness. And what Malachi is really saying here is that when, when John the Baptist comes, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, yes, but more than that, he will turn the many to righteousness. He will turn the many to righteousness. And, and the very last words of Malachi, the very last words of the Old Testament, in fact, make it clear that this, this needs to happen. This preparation of turning people to righteousness, it needs to happen because if it doesn't happen, the Lord will come and strike the land with a curse. Those are the very last words of the Old Testament. We talked about this here at Prosper this morning. Righteousness is necessary. Psalm 24 again, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. That is only he or she who is righteous. Without righteousness, no one can ascend the hill of the Lord. Without righteousness, no one can stand in the Lord's holy place. Without righteousness, the coming of the Lord means cursing not blessing. Now, these very last words of Malachi, they are, they are repeated and they're elaborated on in Luke 1.17. And this can really help us understand them better, really helps us understand them perfectly. This is what Luke says in Luke 1.17. He's referring here to John the Baptist, and he, he says this, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children 
We see that language. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. So we see that, that one commandment representing all of righteousness. And then he says this, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Those, those last words, they help us see what the end of Malachi, the end of the Old Testament is really about. It's about being prepared for the Lord. How do we prepare for the Lord according to Malachi. Well, we prepare for the Lord by turning away from sin and by turning to righteousness. But here's what you've got to remember. Under the new covenant, after the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, righteousness, well, it never came from the law, but it becomes clear here, righteousness does not come from the law. It does not come from the Ten Commandments. It does not come from one's ability to honor his father or mother or any of the other commandments. Where does it come from? It comes from Jesus. Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Righteousness comes from Jesus. At the cross, God took our sin, our unrighteousness, and He he placed it on His Son. He placed it on Jesus, and He took Jesus' perfect righteousness, and He placed it on us. He credited it to the believer's account. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says, Jesus is our righteousness, plain and simple. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who know no sin to become sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. So we're prepared for the Lord when we turn from sin to righteousness. And in the gospel, we're told that we, 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 we do that when we turn from sin to Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness. If we will have Him by faith, we will have the righteousness God requires. If we will not have Him, we will be cursed. It's that simple. Now, the wonder of the new covenant is that those who turn to Jesus and accept Jesus as their righteousness, they receive Jesus' Holy Spirit. And what does His Holy Spirit do but empower us to more and more reflect His righteous character. It empowers us to more and more love our parents, for instance, as the end of Malachi calls us to do. Of course, it helps us to to not only do that, it helps us to remember the entire law of Moses and to manifest it in our lives even as Christ manifested it in His. A friend of mine was... uh, was remodeling his bathroom. Painter was staining some of their cabinets. And my friend was asking him questions about the stain that he was using. And the painter said, hey, this stain will hold up till the trumpet sounds and the Lord returns. He then looked at my friend. My friend was actually Keith. You remember this, your painter, when he said that to you? Maybe you don't, but I do. Well, now that you know, I thought he's going to know I'm talking about him. And you said, I remember what you said, Keith, you were were caught off guard, as any one of us would have been, and you said, yes, I am ready. 
because you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. What about the rest of us? What about the rest of us? Are we ready for the Lord? Have we confessed our sins to God and turned to Jesus for forgiveness and for righteousness? Certainly many of us have. And for those of us who have, then the task for us is is to become really like John the Baptist. The task for us is to go out into the world and to prepare the way for the Lord. I ask you tonight, whose life might God be calling you to fill that role in? Your children's? Absolutely. Your spouse's? For sure. Who else? Might there be a friend who's not prepared for the Lord? Might there be a coworker who's not prepared for the Lord? Might there be a neighbor who is not prepared for the Lord? Whose life is God calling you to fill that role in this week? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you've provided a righteousness for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in your mercy, you have sent people into our lives to prepare the way and to call us to turn from our sin and to turn to Jesus. Lord, impress upon our hearts who we might do this for in the upcoming week. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. In fairness to Keith, I didn't remember exactly how that played out, and so I made up the bathroom and the stain, but I do remember the questions, so maybe that's why you weren't tracking me. But Sometimes as pastors, we have to do that. We sort of, you know, we get, we get the gist and the point, but you've got to make up the surrounding details. That's my secret that I just let you in on. What happens when you come to night church, you get let in on secrets of the trade. Um, anyway, what are we singing? To God be the glory. It's probably in the blue book. 66, blue book. You know what, Judy, I think I'll give him the blessing and then we'll just sing all three verses uh, in a moment. So 66, before, you, before we sing that though, why don't you stand up and, uh, and we will, I'll give you the parting blessing. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face toward you and grant you his peace. Amen. Number 66, we'll we'll close with all three verses together.